Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Katie Worth to the show. Katie Worth is an Emmy-winning investigative journalist and author of her forthcoming book, Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America. Katie is an investigative journalist who writes about science, politics, and their myriad intersections. She joined Frontline in 2015 as the inaugural Frontline Columbia Toe Journalism Fellow, and in 2018 was selected as an O'Brien Fellowship in Public Service Journalism. She has worked on several Frontline's enterprise reporting projects and co-produced the cinematic interactive story, The Last Generation, which won an Emmy for Outstanding New Approaches documentary. Her work has appeared in Scientific American, National Geographic, Slate, and The Best American Science and Nature Writing 2016. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Katie, I'm super excited for this conversation. We were talking offline about my children and the education, but your upcoming book, Miseducation, very excited to dig into it. But before we do, quick question for you. How did you become fluent in Spanish? <laughs> um, wow. Well, I have um, my cousin lives in Santiago de Chile, and I uh, wound up living there for three years with him and his kids who are Chilean. So I, um, yeah, I got pretty good at it at that point. How did you know that I'm fluent in Spanish? <laughs> One of my jobs is to research my guests. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And how was life in Chile? What, can you put us in a time frame? When was this? Uh, I lived there from 2011 to 2014, I think. And it was great. It's a be such a beautiful country. It's like all mountains and ocean. And the Andes are just breathtaking. Um, and Santiago is actually right up against the Andes. So, you know, I and I had a 16th floor apartment. So I would just look out every morning and see the Andes. Sometimes I couldn't see them because of the smog, but most of the time I could see them. And um, yeah, I really love it. I'd encourage anybody to go visit once the pandemic is over. Did you do any reporting on Chile while you were there? Yeah, I did. I, um, I was, I kind of, that's when I kind of got into science reporting. So I wrote several stories for Scientific American and National Geographic um, about the science that was happening in South America that um, may not get much attention in uh, English language press. But Chile is actually a really big deal in the astronomy world because um, northern Chile, the Atacama Desert, uh, is has some of the clearest skies in the world, and so there's several uh, there's several major telescopes there, and so I kind of got into astronomy reporting. So astronomy reporting, can you give some examples of articles you wrote regarding astronomy? Sure. Yeah. I um, so the largest 
radio telescope array in the world is called ALMA. And it was just coming online in the Atacama Desert uh, when I was there. And so I got to go visit that uh, as it was opening and wrote a story about that. I um, spent several days up in the Andes uh, with a team that was building a robot that could be landed in a lake on Saturn's moon of Titan, um, and then, you know, could float in the lake and collect information about the lake. And so uh, they decided to, I mean, there's no, uh, there's a lot of differences in a lake and on the earth and a lake on Titan, the main one being that the lake on Titan isn't made of water. So the lakes on Titan are made of liquid ethane and methane. So there's not like an exact equivalent lake on Earth. But this team uh, decided for various reasons that there was a lake in Chile that could be could be a good equivalent and or fair enough equivalent to test their robot in. Do you know if they ever got that robot launched? They have not yet, but it's uh, Titan is a place that astronomers are very interested in visiting and think that there could potentially be life uh, or could have been life at some point. So I wouldn't be surprised if one day we do send a lake lander to Titan. Isn't it amazing to think there might have been life out there? It is. It is. And there may be still, you know, I mean, or maybe at current, you know, where it's a big universe. So I'll go on record and say that I firmly believe there's life out there somewhere. I just I just can't believe that it's only Earth. Yeah, I agree with you. So I'm going to switch gears here. I mentioned the book earlier, Miseducation. Can you give the audience an overview of the book and why you wrote it? Yeah, absolutely. So the book uh, is basically about what American kids learn about climate change in school and who has influenced that education. And spoiler alert, um, the fossil fuel industry has been pretty involved in shaping what our education about climate change is. And, um, and so I looked at it from a whole bunch of angles, and I read through dozens of text, science textbooks and social studies textbooks to try and figure out what textbooks are saying about climate change. Um, I visited, you know, more than a dozen classrooms all over the country. I, uh, I talked to teachers. I talked to people in the fossil fuel industry. Um, I visited a class that was, um, that had a lobbyist giving a PowerPoint presentation from the fossil fuel industry to the seventh graders. Um, so I kind of looked at it from a whole bunch of angles and concluded that there's a lot of problems. So before we get into the details about the book, writing a book is not easy. What inspired you to write a book and this book in particular? It's not easy. I would not recommend it to anyone who doesn't feel absolutely compelled to do so. Um, but uh, yeah, this story kind of wasn't initially going to be a book. I work for the uh, news series, the investigative series uh, Frontline PBS for several years. And the executive producer there was very interested in this question of what kids learn about climate change. And so it was going to be a film for a while. It was going to be a magazine article. It was going to be an interactive. It was going to be a podcast. But this, the, the reporting just kept getting 
broader and deeper and more kind of all encompassing. And um, so ultimately, it seemed like it could merit a book. And uh, that might be the best way to tell the story. What's your hope for the book? What's your goal for the book? Well, I think I'd like for it to have an impact. Um, I'd like for people to read it and be surprised and start asking questions about what's happening in their kids' schools and in their state legislature. Um, And, you know, I think it's really there's a way that this is niche, like climate education, but there's another way that it's extremely topical. Like these kids are the people with the most at stake in the climate crisis. They have been born into a century that it will be defined by this crisis. And they deserve to understand the world that they're entering in. And they also are needed to help create solutions and they uh we should be they should be taught about this and so if if there can be collective action taken to improve what kids learn in school um, and how prepared kids are to become decision-making adults um, i think it could be really impactful now you mentioned the lobbyist earlier and you said you know being surprised What were some of the surprising things that you uncovered in your research while writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a number of things that surprised me. Um, You know, I was was sitting in this classroom in Arkansas. It was a seventh grade science classroom. And the teacher had arranged for a visitor that day. And in walked this lobbyist for um, the Arkansas, Arkansas's oil and gas lobby. Um, and she had a whole PowerPoint presentation that she spent the whole hour giving to the students about kind of the benefits of fossil fuels and how useful they've been to humanity uh, and, you know, describing a little bit about the geology and kind of like, you know, legitimate science questions, the technology that's used to, to take fossil fuels out of the ground under their feet. Um, and then then there was a whole section that was sort of about, it was sort of in defense of the fossil fuel industry. And she didn't talk directly about climate change in the sense that she didn't define it. She just said, well, the problem with uh, with fossil fuels is greenhouse emissions. She didn't define what that was. And then she said, but every single uh, fuel has a problem. If you use solar, what happens if it's cloudy? There's no power. If you use wind, maybe birds will be killed. You know, she and like so every every form of energy is going to have a problem. And also, fossil fuels are essential for human well being. And so, do you want humans to thrive, or do you just want everything to be pristine and for humans to pay the price? You know, and kids listening to it were, it was reasonable with that information to think like, oh, yeah, well, sure, maybe there's a problem. But like, what are we going to do about it? Like, it's better for humans to thrive, you know, which is, of course, a totally false narrative, like, like not dealing with the crisis won't won't lead to human thriving. It's going to lead to a lot of human suffering. Um, and so it was sort of this false equivalence and this um, this narrative that the fossil fuel industry has pushed for a long time. And it was being fed to seventh graders who didn't know 
to question it. And the teacher was deferential. And so were they. The only questions they had were how much they would get paid if they worked for the fossil fuel industry. (laughs) And they were impressed with the figure that she gave them. So, you know, it, it wasn't surprising to me that the fossil fuel industry is involved with education. They have a long history of pushing their messages to children. But I hadn't seen it play out in a classroom quite that vividly. And, um, and, you know, this is a person that's her job. She goes classroom to classroom all over Arkansas, giving this presentation to third graders, fifth graders, seventh graders, high schoolers every single day. That really is surprising. Do you know if individuals involved in the climate change movement get the same opportunity within classrooms? I didn't come across anything like that. I mean, of course, an individual teacher might have a guest who is, you know, thoughtful about the crisis or who is a is a climate educator, but there's not the same kind of concerted effort, you know, in the environmental space. I mean, there are a few, there are a few cases. There's one group, um, I think it's called the Alliance for Climate Education that does school assemblies. So they'll go to your school and do a whole performance that teaches kids sort of the basics about climate change and gets them involved. Um, So there are a few programs like that, but it's not as well funded or as proliferated as the fossil fuel campaign. What did you come across as far as curriculum and children learning about climate change in schools? Well, it varies a lot. You know, there's um, America has you know, 3 million teachers educating 50 million children enrolled in 100,000 public schools, right? And there's no, there's no federal curriculum. Those kids are, are educated quite differently depending on what uh, school they're in, what state they're in. Um, And so what I found was a real diversity of curricula. So, you know, the, the main lever of control that a state has over education is something called educational standards. And before the audience totally falls asleep when I mention educational standards, <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're really powerful. It's basically a state's educa- it's, a state's expectation of what a kid's going to learn in each grade and each class. And so, you know, like it might be like in fourth grade math, they're going to learn long division or something. And so, you know, some states have climate change in their science standards and their social studies standards. And so kids in that state, no matter who their teachers are, are going to learn at least something about it, or they're supposed to if if the teachers are following the standards. But in other cases, there's no mention of the phenomenon and the standards. And in some cases, there is mention of it, but it's doubtful. You know, it's asking kids to debate whether or not climate change is happening, if it's real, um, which is something that, of course, scientists don't debate, but we're asking children to debate. How did you choose the schools you visited? Uh, Well, you know, this whole project got started back in 20, let's see, it must have been 2017. Um, So I had been a science reporter for a long time and specifically focused on kind of the intersection of, of science and politics. But I had spent 
my whole career avoiding writing about climate change because it felt, you know, every time I kind of read about the issue, I just wound up feeling this despair and helplessness and powerlessness. And, you know, so like climate change would come across my feed and I'd scroll right past or there'd be a headline about polar bears, um, you know, and on an ice flow and I just like turn the page of the newspaper, you know, like I just, (laughs) like, I didn't want to know about it because it made me feel so despairing. And then um, in 2017, Frontline got a grant basically to tell a story about climate change. It could be anywhere in the world. We had money to go anywhere in the world and tell any story, but it had to be about climate change. So that was, that was when I kind of had to like, you know, get my come to grips (laughs) with this crisis and, you know, and take and, you know, take start taking it seriously in my writing. And so, you know, we looked at stories everywhere, all across the country. um, And we wound up doing a story that was in the Marshall Islands. And we chose the Marshall Islands because we were doing a film project and we wanted to go somewhere where the crisis wasn't like futuristic. It wasn't hypothetical where you could see the effects already. So on film and, you know, every year there's more and more places like that. Um, But the, the effects in these little Pacific nations are very, are famous and they're kind of undeniable. And we decided to focus on kids because kids have the most at stake. And so we went around and we talked to dozens of kids um, in the Marshall Islands and I was just stunned at how well-versed and how kind of fluent they were in talking about climate change, like far more than most adults that I know here. And it's because they're learning about it in school. It's like, you know, we talked to one kid who was learning about it in at age six and then at age seven and then in third grade and fourth grade too. And, you know, the adults in, in his life were talking about it and it was um, central to his education. And so, and that kid actually, um, his parents were thinking about moving to the U S to Oklahoma and, um, and, uh, and so I, partly to make sure that he could get a good education. And so I started wondering like, okay, well, if he moves to Oklahoma, what will he learn about climate change? So, you know, I went to Oklahoma (laughs) and that, that was sort of like the genesis of the reporting question that undergirds this book, right? So I went to Oklahoma, I went to Arkansas, which also has a very large Marshallese community. I went to Idaho because there was a big conflict that went down over the course of many years about whether um, the crisis should be mentioned in science standards. Um, and then I went to um, California, specifically to my hometown, which um, is Chico, California, and only about 14 miles from Paradise, California, which, if you will recall, burned down in mm-hmm. the, uh, the 2018 campfire. So, you know, Chico has been flooded with these refugees. And, um, and so I visited all these schools in my hometown and kind of to observe what, what they were learning about climate change as well. So that's a really long winded (laughs) answer to your question. I was just kind of hoping to survey the nation at large and also like find really interesting and really kind of 
intimate stories about this in the classroom. So you could kind of zoom in on a particular kid or a particular teacher and tell the story through their eyes. You know, it's very interesting you mentioned the word refugee, especially in the current environment we're in. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about refugees coming in from Afghanistan and other countries. And just a couple of days ago, after Ida hit New Orleans, I was reading that I think in the particular in one particular area, 80% of the people there are thinking of not rebuilding and moving. I think wow. very I think very often when we think about refugees, political refugees, we think about countries, we don't realize it could be city to city or state to state. Yeah, it really could. And that happened to my hometown. So all of a sudden there were 50,000 homeless or people on how like people whose homes had burned down um, that uh, kind of needed to live somewhere else in the county, you know, and so Chico absorbed a huge number of them. Other towns in the county absorbed some some people, you know, went to LA or, you know, all over the country, but they could no longer be in their home because it had burned down. And some people are rebuilding, but that takes a long time. And, you know, it's really roiled the local politics in Chico. You know, there's, it's completely changed the the nature of the city and the feel of the city to, to kind of have its population overnight increase by 50%. I think towards the end of your book, you have a story about a young boy whose family had to escape, who had been learning about climate change in, in school. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in Chico, I uh, wound up spending quite a bit of time in this one school. It was uh, Paradise Intermediate School, which had been forced to move from its location in Paradise to some real estate in Chico. And the only real estate they could find was a shuttered hardware store. Um, it was an OSH. I, I don't think it, it's not a huge change. So most people won't know what an OSH is, but it's sort of like a Lowe's or a Home Depot. And it had closed the year before and nobody had moved in. So they put the school in this big box hardware store and the classes would be like in the aisles. So like the the class that I was in, the seventh grade science class was like in the the light fixture aisle and they you know made it work it was really loud you know they would play freeze tag where the garden center was it was just this very surreal like they would do lunch at the checkout counters you know like it was very it was just really surreal and a little bit apocalyptic feeling and so this one teacher there mr kessler was doing a unit on climate change. And so I, of course, was really curious to hear what he was teaching that about that subject to, to children whose homes had burned down in a wildfire, which of course are far more frequent than they ever were um, because of the crisis. So, um, so I went and visited the store and <laughs> spent a couple weeks in the, in kind of, observing the class and one of the kids that he wasn't the only one but one of the kids in the class um you know was hearing at home that the climate change was a hoax and he was spending his day in science class looking at nasa data and NOAA data and kind of like temperature records and kind of looking at evidence um and drawing conclusions about what is happening to the planet's climate and so he, at one point, raised his hand 
and asked Mr. Kessler, like, basically, like, no disrespect, but my parents say that this is, this isn't true. And, you know, Mr. Kessler kind of had to navigate that and figure out, you know, how to present the truth to this kid who was getting really mixed messages about kind of a very fundamental fact of his life. Speaking of mixed messages and, you know, the young man with the hoax, being told it's a hoax, how did you see teachers handling pushback or resistance from kids? You know, they go home, they talk to their parents, the parents say, no, it doesn't exist or, you know, it's not real, etc. And then they go to school and, you know, convey that to their teachers. How did you see teachers handling messages like that? Well, actually, Mr. Kessler handled it beautifully. So I'm just going to kind of tell you how he handled it. Um, he, Nicoa said, I don't, I don't know who to believe. And my parents told me not to argue with the teacher, but I also, I want to know. And Mr. Kessler, you know, said, um, yeah, it must, it must be hard to be getting these mixed messages and that's challenging. And, um, and it's respectful of your parents to say not to argue with the teacher, but it's also okay to bring up different views in my classroom. And if teachers or if scientists didn't argue, we wouldn't get to the truth. And he said that, um, you know, like my job is to give you evidence. It's not to tell you what to believe. I'm just providing you with the very best evidence I can. And so that you can take a look at it and come to your own conclusion. And it's not to indoctrinate you. And so just, you know, pay attention to the patterns you're seeing and pay attention to this data that you, you know, that you trust um, and find trustworthy data and kind of figure out what you think. So I think that that was a really beautiful way to handle it where he sidestepped any conflict with the parents, but just told, told Nicoa to trust himself to keep investigating that science is investigation and evidence and looking for answers. Um, and that he can do that aside from what any adult in his life is telling him. Sounds like the teacher handled it very well. Yes, I agree. Now you mentioned Oklahoma and Arkansas, both are very heavy in fossil fuels. Did you come across any children that perhaps felt, I don't know if protective is the right word, but you know, their parents may have been employed by fossil fuel um, companies, and the kids were conflicted because of that reason? Yeah, I did. I I came, actually, the kid that I'm thinking of most clearly is a kid that I met in Idaho, which is not a big fossil fuel state. It has a little bit, but not too much. But um, we were talking and he's like, oh, he lived with his grandparents. And he's like, oh, yeah, climate change is totally a hoax. And I'm like, why do you think that? And he's like, well, because my grandparents said, said that, and, you know, they said it many times. And I was like, well, do you do you think that it's possible that your grandparents are wrong? And he's like, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I was like, well, does that not give you something to think about? And he's like, oh, no, I just I'm I'm, you know, on the side of my grandparents. So it doesn't really matter if they're right or wrong. And so that kind of like encapsulates this, you know, our kids trust us, you know, and they we are, parents are the most important, guardians are the most important people in the lives of these kids. And so if a kid is getting really strong message that this is what you need to believe, and even if, it, you know, they, he was willing to admit that it could be wrong, but 
to him, the most important thing was loyalty to his family and their belief system. And, you know, I think that that happens with kids of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I mean, of course, there's lots of people in the fossil fuel industry that absolutely believe in climate change. Um, But, you know, for those that don't, their kids are totally going to be defensive of them and their way of life. And, you know, Uh, not receptive to the idea that the fossil fuel industry has, you know, caused a major crisis in the world, if that's what their beloved family member uh, does to support the family. Do you have any examples of it going in reverse where, you know, a kid might hear about climate change in school and go home, be able to convince their parents that it's real? Yeah, I mean, another kid that I met in Chico, he, he went home and talked to his parents who were kind of on the fence about it. But then when I talked to the parents, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm glad that he's learning about this in school. And, you know, maybe we need to learn a little bit more too. Like they were very neutral about it. Um, but they're, they were conservative politically. So they're, they were kind of following the dominant narrative of the, the Republican Party, um, which is to deny or dismiss um, the crisis, but they were open to some to some feedback. They weren't so entrenched that they they refused to hear it. That's good to hear. Now you were on this journey for quite a while. What lessons did you learn about yourself in your journey? Hmm. Well, um, one thing that I learned was that you know I'd spent all that time avoiding climate writing about climate change or thinking about it as best as I could. And that it was empowering, of course, um, to do something, to tell a story, to not avoid it. It's, I mean, of course, that's, that's not a surprise, like avoiding something doesn't make it go away or make it less (laughs) scary. And like taking action doesn't make it go away either, but it feels a lot less powerless than confronting it and and dealing with it. So that was important for me (laughs) to remember. Uh, I think that I learned that um, I don't like writing books. (laughs) 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 So I'm glad I wrote this one, but I'm not sure I ever want to write another one. You know, I think uh, I I learned reporting is always a a lesson in, in listening. And really, really listening and paying attention. And it's that's one of the best parts of being a reporter is getting entrusted with people's stories. Um, and I uh, am learning from them. And it's not like, a, you know, me figuring out what the narrative is and, and, f- and finding stories that fit it, but like really going in with an open mind and trying to figure out what's happening. And um, I love that kind of learning part of the reporting process. I do too. And I was listening to your story and, you know, you mentioned that this journey started around 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And you said something about the intersection of science and politics. Mm -hmm. And I think the last, I'm going to say year and a half has been an overindulgence or an amplification of the intersection of science and politics. Mm, Yes. <laughs> we're we're in the middle of it right now. I still feel, and I, I don't know where it's going to end up or when we're going to start realizing that. Yes, while some scientists do have an agenda, the majority of them are trying to do good work and just publish good work and get good evidence out there for any situation that we're in. Yeah, it's really, it's really kind of fascinating how 
kind of how science has become political, because it just wasn't always that way. Like I did some research about how this fit into the larger picture of science and belief in science, um, trust in science. Um, And, you know, there were plenty of times in our country's history where people of all parties and all religions um, and all ages had about the same trust in science. And that, so if you just look at the figure of like how, what percentage of people trust science today versus 40 years ago, that number is actually the same. But then if you dig into that a little bit, then you see that people in the Democratic Party trust science much more than they did 40 years ago. And people in the Republican Party tend to trust science much less than 40 years ago. And there's a religious divide. Um, there's a race divide that, you know, where things used to be more or less, you know, your, your feeling about science and your trust in science was sort of independent of your politics and your demographics. It had more to do with your kind of knowledge about it and your trust in authority and things like that. Um, now it's very linked to your demographics and your political perspective. And, um, and that's, you know, it's just really fascinating. And like, I don't, I don't know the answer to how we get back to a world where science is more broadly trusted. You know, it's an interesting observation. I would like to add that I think the internet has absolutely added to that because when we were growing up, I was telling my children recently that uh, if I wanted to find out anything, it'd have to be in a book somewhere, some kind of encyclopedia or whatever that Mm -hmm. might be. And I think access to both information and misinformation is so easy to get nowadays that, you know, you've heard the joke about the Google doctor, right? Everyone's a Google doctor <laughs> right. and everyone's a Google scientist, right? I've, I've, I've read the headlines. I've read about it for 20 minutes. I'm an expert now. And I think just access to so much information is just overwhelming and people can portray themselves as experts or knowledgeable just by doing maybe perhaps, you know, very cursory research or even reading. Yeah. And it's like also the, what's that called? The confirmation bias uh, that we live in this world where we live in a world where, you know, you have access to to information and misinformation and you just absorb the the information that uh, confirms what you already believe and reject information that uh, that doesn't conform to that. And you're absolutely right that like there's so much information and misinformation that you can confirm basically anything that you want to believe. The good old-fashioned echo chamber. (laughs) Right, exactly. So let's move into the future. Optimist, pessimist, what do you think the future holds for the education of climate change? Well, the good news for climate education and the bad news for the world is that climate change is getting to be less and less deniable um, every day, basically, as it's moved out of this kind of futuristic hypothetical world to one where that's like affecting us all over the country every year. Um, it just becomes harder to, the misinformation becomes less powerful. And so at some point, it's, it's not going to be a question of whether you believe it or not, if you trust the science or not, it's finally going to get to an area of like, well, what do we do about it, if anything, which is, which is a more debatable question than whether or not it's happening. And so, you know, at that point, it won't, there won't be this attempt to downplay it or 
erase it from kids' education. And kids are kids are observant and they're going to be asking questions themselves. And the more questions they ask their science teachers, their social studies teachers, the more those teachers are going to, you know, whatever the curriculum says, they're going to kind of teach it to their kids. So, um, so I do think that there's that kids in the future will learn more about this simply because it's going to be this undeniable fact of their life. So I think that's more pessimistic than optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, there's also real evidence that like there's some places that with collective action, they're, um, you know, they're pushing back against attempts to minimize the climate crisis in schools Um, You know, in Idaho, there were attempts to remove climate change from the academic standards for in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 and 2020. But the standards are there now. And like some and climate educators, science teachers, parents, students all showed up to those hearings and insisted that climate change belonged in the science standards and they won. And so they're still fighting. Like there's actually another fight this year, but like they're in the standards. So like collective action works. That's really good to hear. Again, staying in the future here, if you could, and I know, I know each state has different curricula, curriculum. What's the correct word? Curricula, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But if you could have the ear of the secretary of education or leaders in education, what kind of advice, if any, would you give them about teaching climate change in schools? Well, what I would say is the idea of climate change and what people need to know about climate change has been reduced to these 10 words, basically. It's real. It's us. It's bad. Scientists agree about it. And there's hope. And so like those five points, you know, there's a scientific consensus. It's happening. We are responsible for it. It's bad. And then that we are, you know, there's hope that we we can make progress against this. Like if a kid can walk out of school with that information, then they are set up to understand more deeply how it will affect their life, how it will affect their politics, how it will affect uh, their job prospects. And, um, and so what I think that the way that you teach kids that is not just, you know, once in science class, but talking to them about it in social studies, civics, history, English. Um, there, New Jersey just adopted some new uh, academic standards that has it even in math and in physical education and <laughs> in computer science. So like, you know, like little bits of it throughout an education at a developmentally appropriate, you know, ways, not, you know, teaching second graders about, you know, uh, carbon dioxide parts per million, but, you know, like getting them prepared to understand the world as it functions, um, you know, is, it is possible. And it's such a relevant, it will be so relevant to their life. And it's such a actually a really useful tool to understand the world. Um, So I think um, that's one piece of advice. And then the other piece of advice is something that Frank Neopold told me, I think I was telling me this offline earlier, but right now climate education is 99% problem and 1% solution. And young people want 
20% problem and 80% solution. So you don't need to beat kids over the head with how bad things are, but you do need to get their brains and imaginations involved in finding ways that we can survive and thrive um, despite the crisis. Katie, I think getting imaginations involved is a great place to leave off. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your time today. I wish you all the best with the book, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks. Likewise, I've really enjoyed um, talking to you. Thank you, Katie. Okay. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.